Bible. So the book of Numbers is where we're at this evening. I hope and trust and pray that the series is a help to all of us. But I want to start here in Numbers chapter 6. We'll look at verses 22 through 27. This is a good starting place as we begin to consider this book. Numbers chapter 6 and verse 22. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, saying, On this wise ye shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Heavenly Father, as we come to you tonight, we come to you knowing that you are the God who brings true blessing. There is joy in serving Jesus. Lord, there's true blessing for those that know you, that are trusting in you, that are obedient to you. And we pray, Father, that you would open our hearts to receive that truth tonight. We pray for us as we examine this book of Scripture, perhaps one that has been neglected by some of us, but yet one that we know speaks powerfully to us today. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, dear Father, that we would receive the word with all meekness tonight. We do want to lift before you the needs that have been brought to our attention this evening. We do pray for Suzanne with her uh, biopsy. We pray that you would be gracious to her. We pray that there would be um, no new cancer that would be discovered. We pray that, um, Lord, you would care for her during this time. We also would lift before you uh, Maggie Ames with her uh, therapy that she's undergoing. We pray that you would bless her in that process. We pray that she would know your peace and joy as she goes through that. But Father, as we come to the preaching of your word, please arrest our attention. Give us grace, Father, that we would not be distracted. We pray that the cares of this world would not serve as thorns that would choke out the word. Father, we pray that we would give earnest heed to the teachings of your precious scriptures. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The covenant that God made with Abraham involves three features. And I'm sure I've mentioned this on more than one occasion. But those three features are a land, a seed, and a blessing. If you look carefully throughout all the books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, you will find that those three features are repeated over and over again. And really, the book of Numbers gives special emphasis to each of those features, the land, the seed, and the blessing. You consider first the land. Really, when you look at the book of Numbers, this entire book is devoted to preparing Israel for entrance into the land. This is the context in which this book was originally given. One generation refuses to believe God's promise about the land, while the next moves forward in confident trust that God would give them the land. There's the seed. 
This is really where the title of this book in our English Bibles comes into play. Of course, this is called the Book of Numbers. And there are two censuses that are given in the book. Censuses, that seems like a weird term. It seems like it should be sensi or something, but I don't think that's a word. But in each case, there is a census taken of the Exodus generation and then of the wilderness generation that would actually go into the promised land. And what we see in each case is that God has blessed Israel with abundant fruitfulness. Of course, we recall that Abraham was given this promise that his seed would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Just as those stars are innumerable, so would Abraham's seed be. And finally, there's the blessing. And I would suggest to you that that element in particular comes to the forefront in the book of Numbers. We saw that in the passage that we read a moment ago, that blessing that the priests were to pronounce upon the children of Israel. We also will see it in the account of this unusual pagan soothsayer named Balaam, whom God miraculously enables to speak blessing upon the children of Israel, even despite his own intentions, really. All throughout this book, we see God's faithfulness to a nation that is disobedient, that is disbelieving, that is stubborn and rebellious. But yet, we find that God is determined to bless these people. Now, even though God does bless His people, we see it repeatedly throughout Numbers, we also see that their disobedience comes with a price tag. The Hebrew title for the book of Numbers is Bamidbar which literally means in the wilderness. It's the fifth word in the book in the Hebrew text. And really, much of this book is taken up with discussing Israel's wandering in the wilderness. And we know that that was a consequence of their sin. And so I've entitled this message, God's People Punished and Blessed, because we see both of those elements in this book. There is punishment for disobedience. They have to undergo the disciplinary action of the Lord because of their refusal to believe God's promise and to confidently enter the land. But there's also blessing. We have mentioned before that that promise given to Abraham, the promise of a land, a seed, and a blessing, is unconditional. Ultimately, God himself alone is responsible for the fulfillment of that covenant. And so, yes, indeed, God would be faithful to that promise, even when Israel is unfaithful. So, the basic message of the book of Numbers is this. In order to avoid punishment and experience blessing, we must trust and obey our faithful God. In order to avoid punishment and experience blessing, we must trust and obey our faithful God. Now, we want to get into the organization of this book, but it is a book that commentators have found notoriously difficult to outline. Actually, I had one of my professors, I was reading his comments on this book, he said that it's almost as if the structure of the book itself reflects Israel's circuitous meanderings of the wilderness wanderings that it records. 
And so many commentators have struggled to find any sense of organization at all in this book. But I have to give a shout out to another one of my professors that actually did a dissertation on the book of Numbers. I know, that sounds riveting. Dr. Alan Ingalls, he organized his structure of this book actually in three very simple points, of course, with a lot of subpoints underneath. And so I'm using really a modified and simplified version of his outline as we work our way through this book. And really, the way that you can organize this book, you can see it in three different acts, all related to Israel and whether or not they are obeying the Lord. So we want to see, first of all, number one, the first act, the pursuit of obedience. The pursuit of obedience. And you find this in chapters 1 through 10. Over 20 times in this chapter, you will find expressions that indicate Israel's obedience to the commands of God. You will see expressions such as, as the Lord commanded Moses, or according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. The scene in these chapters reminds us, really, of that message that those of us that were present at the Men's Chili Supper heard recently, that message on obedience. God would give commands for entering the land, and Israel would say, okay. We see that repeatedly throughout these chapters. And there are three areas in particular where Israel demonstrated obedience. First of all, there was obedience in ordering the camp. You find this in chapters 1 through 4. The book of Numbers begins, quite fittingly, with a census in chapter 1. And there is a census taken of the men of war who were over 20 age, years of age. Now, if you're like me, this is the type of information that you're kind of likely to skim over in your Bible reading. When you get to this passage, you might not find much meat in terms of your own devotional experience. But if you read closely, you will find that there were 603,550 available men. Now, that number excludes Levites, women, and children. So when you factor in those other groups, you're looking at a nation that probably comprised around 2 to 3 million people. All led and organized by a single pastor, if you want to put it in those terms, Moses. Now, this is where critics of the Bible really have pulled their hair out. And they've said, well, this is evidence that this can't be true because we know that Israel has never had that many inhabitants until modern times. Uh, we don't find any evidence of this many people existing in Israel. And really the difficulty increases when you find later in chapter 3 that there were only 22,273 males that were firstborn. And that results in an average of 26 brothers for every man. Imagine that kind of family. Now, some have tried to work around this by saying that the numbers are symbolic or really trying to evade the clear meaning of the passage through other means. But I would suggest, friends, that None of those methods are compelling. I think we just have to take the text at face value. And we've seen all throughout the books of Moses that God has been faithful to do mighty wonders among his people. We've seen his faithfulness in the plagues. We've seen his faithfulness in parting the Red Sea. 
would it be such an incredible thing for our Creator God to enable Israel to be fruitful and multiply on this level? And I would suggest that it is not an incredible thing to believe especially when God has bound himself to the nation of Israel in covenant faithfulness to do exactly what he does here. We again, we remember that promise in Genesis 15, your seed will be innumerable like the stars in the sky. In another place in Genesis 13, Abraham's seed is compared to the dust of the earth that is innumerable. And so indeed, God would be faithful to his covenant people here. We don't have to wonder whether he would actually keep his promises and whether the things recorded here actually are so or not. Now, we have to note that in the census that is taken, the the Levites are excluded. The Levites, the Aaronic priests, they were not to be involved in military campaigns because they were tasked with the all-important responsibility of caring for the spiritual needs of the people. They had to oversee the transport of the tabernacle. They had to continue the sacrificial system. They had to prevent any ritual defilement. And so these tasks were critical. As you note the ordering of the camp as they prepared to leave, you will find that the Levites and the priests are actually at the center with around the tabernacle while all the other tribes surround them. And so emphasis is really given to the spiritual life of the people of Israel. So there's obedience in ordering the camp. There's also obedience in purifying the camp in chapters 5 and 6. In chapter 5, Israel obeys God's command to expel the lepers from the camp, thus symbolizing the cleanness and holiness that God required of his people. You find this procedure explained in chapter 5 for this jealousy offering when a husband suspected that his wife might have been guilty of adultery. There was a procedure that ultimately served to protect the innocent and serve to prevent God's displeasure on the nation from when a false accusation might arise and somebody might be put to death unnecessarily. Chapter 6 describes the Nazarite vow, that special sacred vow that was taken of consecration. And of course we note Samson most famously was one who undertook such a vow. So, with the camp ordered and purified, we find, lastly, in chapters 1 through 10, we find obedience in operating the camp. And this continues on from chapter 7 to the end of this section. This section gives us Israel's obedience, especially in religious observances. Chapter 7, you see the leaders of the children of Israel bringing offerings, and these offerings are described in some detail. In chapter 8, the Levites are installed. In chapter 9, the people celebrate their second Passover in commemoration of God's faithfulness. In chapter 10, the people begin to journey away from Mount Sinai as the cloud representing God's presence is lifted from the tabernacle. Now, if you go over to chapter 10, you'll find how this section of Numbers ends. Numbers chapter 10 and verses 33 through 36. Numbers 10, verse 33. And they departed from the mount of the Lord three days journey. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them 
in the three days' journey to search out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was upon them by day when they went out of the camp. And it came to pass when the ark set forward that Moses said, Rise up, Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered, and let them that hate thee flee before thee. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, unto the many thousands of Israel. So with all the obedience that we've seen in chapters 1 through 10, what Moses says in verse 35 is the expected result. That God will rise up and defend his people and that the people that oppose Israel are going to be scattered. They're going to go in. They're going to claim this land that God promised to them. And they'll go riding off happily in the sunset. Well, we wish that that were the end of the story. But if we're students of scripture, we know that such is not the end of the story. Because we note in chapters 11 through 25, the fall into disobedience. That's really the second act in the book of Numbers. So we've gone from repeat, repeated obedience in chapters 1 through 10 to disobedience in chapters 11 through 25. Notice how chapter 11 begins. Look at the first three, three verses here. And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. And the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. And the people cried unto Moses, and when Moses prayed unto the Lord, the fire was quenched, and he called the name of the place Tabera, because the fire of the Lord burnt among them. The journey to the promised land is off to a great start, isn't it? We've got people complaining, we've got the fire of the Lord consuming people. Great start, right? And so this verse introduces a section that deals with the rebellion of the people. You see it in chapters 11 through 19. And in these chapters, you find five different rebellion narratives. And really, there are three more that are going to follow later in the book. And these rebellion narratives, they all tend to follow a particular pattern, as noted by one commentator. He found six different things that occur in each of these. First, the people rebel or complain. Second, God replies to the rebellion or complaint. Third, divine judgment follows. Four, Moses intercedes. Number five, the judgment ends. And then six, the people name the site of the rebellion and judgment with a name that commemorates the event. So you see this pattern over and over again as you go through these chapters. And it really, if you actually sit down and you read through these chapters in one sitting, the, the impact of it is really quite profound. You see just how stubborn and rebellious these people are. And there's a central sin in all of this that, that occurs over and over again. It's the sin of murmuring or complaining. Twelve times these chapters mention that. By the way, did you know that complaining is a sin? I know, that's not easy for any of us to hear, probably. Now, I'm not talking about a situation where you see a problem in some organization, like a church, and you, can, you, know, you ask the leadership and you approach them about the issue. I'm talking about issues where you're going behind the scenes and you're trying to generate discontent. You're trying to cause people to be discontent with the situation at a particular organization. That's complaining. It's murmuring. 
and it's repeatedly condemned in this book. It's evidence, really, that the Israelites do not have a firm trust in the providence of God. And really, the same is true for you and me. As we find ourselves complaining about various things that take place, we're failing to recognize that God is in control. We're failing to recognize that He's caring for us and He's seeking to provide our needs. So this is the recurring trap that Israel finds itself in with murmuring and complaining. So I want us to look briefly through this section. The rebellion of the people really starts in chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, that section that we just read. There's kind of a general complaint that takes place there. Once we get to verse 4, on to the end of the chapter in verse 35, we find more specific complaining that takes place. Look at verses 4 through 6 in chapter 11. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a-lusting. Gotta love that King James English. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely. Great memory, right? The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. So you see how the people of Israel, just a couple years into this excursion, this escape from Egypt, they're already tired of the manna. And so they start to complain. Of course, we've seen previously the people complaining even in Exodus and now all of this is really weighing heavily on Moses so as you go through this chapter you find that Moses goes to the Lord he he acknowledges I I can't do this anymore I can't bear this load by myself and so God does two things he's gracious first of all in providing for Moses and he provides Moses with 70 elders whom God's spirit rests upon and enables them to come alongside Moses and help to bear the burdens of the people. But God also provides for the people in a rather unusual way. He provides loads and loads of quails, so much so that the meat is actually coming out their nostrils, as God himself said. Quite a way of providing for them. And of course, a reminder to them to be grateful for the provision that God was providing through the manna. So we see this first couple of rebellions in chapter 11, and then when you go to chapter 12, you find that there's another rebellion that takes place, and this one is initiated by Moses' own siblings of all people. Aaron and Miriam. Now this guy Moses, you know, they're murmuring about Moses. Look at this Cushite wife that he has. And of course, really, it doesn't seem that that's the primary issue. The primary issue seems to be discontent with God's appointed leadership in this situation. But the situation is such that God actually judges Miriam with leprosy for a time. Of course, Moses intercedes, and after seven days outside the camp, apparently Miriam is is healed by God, but... Indeed, God is very firm that Moses is his appointed leader. And so, once again, we see the people rebelling. But the most significant rebellion occurs in chapters 13 and 14. God instructed the people to send spies into the land of Canaan. And all the spies came back, all 12, and they reported 
favorably that, yes, this is a great land. It's prosperous. There's milk and honey flowing. But ten of those spies say, but there's no way we can go in there. The fortifications are too much. The people are giants. We can't take them on. There are two of those spies that are faithful, Caleb and Joshua. We can do this. The Lord has promised us this land. Let's, let's believe the Lord. Let's trust in his promises. Of course, the people align themselves with the majority of spies, the ten, so much so that actually they speak of stoning Caleb and Joshua. They actually begin instigating plans to raise up a captain who will actually lead them back to Egypt in the place of Moses. Well, God is none too pleased with what has taken place. And just as we saw in Exodus chapter 32, God comes to Moses. He says, Moses, stand back. I'm going to destroy these people. We're going to start from scratch with you. Well, Moses, again, he intercedes for his people. He cries out to the Lord, really, based on God's own honor. God, if, if you don't bring these people into the land that you promised them, what are people going to say about our God? That our God wasn't able to get the job done? Well, God does indeed show mercy. He shows grace, but it's not cheap grace. Because he indicates that this generation that has spoken against Moses, this generation that has spoken against the spies, that has refused to believe the promises of God, that generation is not going to enter the land. All the males 20 years, or all the people 20 years and upward, they were going to be part of this generation that is condemned to die in the wilderness. And of course, God is going to raise up a new generation to go into the land. Of course, all with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, who are faithful, who trust in the promises of God. And so this is a pivotal turning point in the history of Israel. And it's interesting that they're condemned to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And really, when you get to chapter 20, you find that all of a sudden, we're at the end of the years of wandering in the wilderness. You find that actually 38 years have transpired from that second Passover. And so really, we have such a small sliver of material that describes those 38 years. And when we read chapters 15 through 20, we don't necessarily know where these events fall in that period of time. But it is a reminder to us with the paucity of information that we have about the wilderness wanderings during that period. It's a reminder to us of the fact that years are wasted when we are out of the will of God. When we choose to go astray from the Lord's commandments and we spend so much time of our lives away from the Lord, all of that is wasted. And apparently nothing in much in those years is worth recording for us in Scripture. And so as you keep reading in the book of Numbers, you come to another rebellion narrative in Numbers chapter 16. This time Korah is the instigator. You also find Dathan and Abiram named specifically. And they're leading this rebellion on the part of the people. It actually sounds quite spiritual. Notice what it says in verse 3 of chapter 16. 
And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. So Korah, Dathan, and Abiram are fomenting all kinds of discontent among the people. So that they lead numbers of people to reject the leadership provided by Moses and Aaron. And it all sounds good, right? I mean, who do you guys think you are? Are you guys so holy and so more, much more spiritual than the rest of us? Hasn't God blessed all of his people? Well, Moses gives an unusual challenge to Korah and his followers. And they come with their incense burners and they stand before the Lord, both Korah Dathan and Abiram and then Aaron. And Moses issues a challenge. He says if Korah and his followers, if they die a normal death, you'll know the Lord didn't send them. But if they die in a way that really has never been heard of, if the earth opens up and swallows them, then you'll know that what they say is totally false. And of course, the earth, swallows up Korah and all of his followers. Now, you would think that would be a pretty clear indicator. God has chosen Moses, not these guys. But these people, I mean, they're so stubborn, it's almost comical. What do they do? You guys, you have killed these people of the Lord. That's the accusation that is leveled against Moses and Aaron. And so God sends a plague, and ultimately God gives quite a vivid reminder of the fact that the Aaronic priesthood is the line that he's chosen. He has Aaron, and then 11 other princes of the tribes of Israel bring their rods to the tabernacle. And then, on the next day, Aaron's rod blossoms and brings forth almonds. Of course, a miracle of God and a sign that Aaron's line is the chosen line for the priesthood. It's amazing. God does these things over and over again because the people are repeatedly stubborn. Now, these really, all these chapters in chapters 11 through 19, it's a pretty depressing picture. But the one remarkable feature that we see in all of this is Moses' character. If you go back to Numbers chapter 12, Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3, notice what is said about Moses. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. That's the inspired commentary on Moses. No question about it that this is it's not just speaking hyperbolically this is real that Moses was indeed the meekest man on the planet and think about it he would have to be dealing with all these rebellious stubborn people for 40 years of his life and you might think to yourself well surely over time he's got to reach a breaking point and he does and that's what we find in chapter 20 we move next into the failure of the leadership. 
If you go over to chapter 20, you notice that chapter 20 actually begins. It says in verse 1, Then came the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, into the desert of Zin in the first month, and the people abode in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. So Miriam, a significant figure in Israel, she has now passed on. And notice verse 2. And there was no water for the congregation. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people chode with Moses and spake, saying, Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. And why have ye brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our cattle should die there? And wherefore have ye made us to come up out of Egypt, to bring us in unto this evil place, it is no place of seed or of figs or of vines or of pomegranates, neither is there any water to drink. Now this is nothing particularly unusual. I mean, Moses had been dealing with these types of complaints for 40 years at this point. And so again, Moses and Aaron, they come before the Lord. Notice the instructions that are given starting in verse 7. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock, so thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. So, very clear instructions given to Moses. Speak to the rock, the rock is going to bring forth water. Now, notice what happens in verse 10. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto them, Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believed me not, to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. Now, be honest. Can't you sympathize with Moses? Forty years of dealing with these rebellious people. And don't you, you have this thought, maybe, that, I mean, isn't the Lord being a little harsh here? I mean, he has one blow-up, right? Loses his temper with this stubborn people. And God doesn't let him go in the promised land. Well, there's a little bit more to it than just that. If we look carefully at what is given here, of course, we know that Moses explicitly failed to follow the instructions that the Lord had given about speaking to the rock rather than striking the rock. But what's particularly striking are the words that you find in verse 10. Notice how Moses and Aaron address the people. Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock. Of course, it wasn't going to be Moses and Aaron fetching water out of the rock. It's God that provided the water out of the rock. And it is for that reason that in verse 12, that God speaks to Moses and Aaron and says, Because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. They failed to sanctify the Lord by holding themselves responsible for bringing the water out of the rock. I would suggest to you that that's the major underlying problem here. A lack of faith that causes them to fail to regard God as holy before the people. 
And for that reason, Moses and Aaron will not enter the promised land. They will not be the ones that God will allow to lead that generation into the land that God promised. So, we see the rebellion of the people. We see the failure of the leadership. We also read of the victory and repentance of the people in chapter, in chapter 21. This chapter begins with a victory over King Arad in the Canaanite. We also find other military victories that are enumerated in this chapter. But in verses 4 through 9, we find uh, an account that is, is perhaps familiar to many of us. Notice verse 4. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses, Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loatheth this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. And so you see this judgment that is brought by God. The people once again murmuring, complaining. God sends fiery serpents. Notice verse 7. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Now it's worth noting here that much of what we have by this point in chapter 21, most if not all of the previous generation has now died off. And now what we're looking at in these accounts is largely this new generation, the wilderness generation, that is actually going to be the one to enter the promised land. And so now this younger generation, they're having to learn some of the same lessons that the older generation has already learned about God's promises and about God's faithfulness. But we see this people, at least at this point, now they're acknowledging their sin. Now notice what the passage goes on to say. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people, as he often does, of course. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. How very unusual that the mechanism by which these people would be healed was by looking at this bronze serpent that Moses had raised up on a pole, and the people, by simply looking at that serpent, could be healed of their snake bite. Now, a casual reader might think, well, this just seems pointless. But of course, those of us who belong to Christ and know our New Testament know that this is foreshadowing something far greater. Let me read to you from John chapter 3. Of course, this is in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. The lifting up of Christ on the cross is compared to Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. And in both cases, the one who looks is healed. For the Israelites experiencing these snake bites, as they look on that bronze serpent that Moses raised up, they're healed. For those of us now, as we 
repent of our sins and we put our trust in Christ, we are healed eternally from sin. Simply by looking to Christ. Simple faith. Isaiah 45, 22, God says, Look unto me and be ye saved, all ye ends of the earth. Simply looking to Christ. Have you looked? I'm not asking if you have joined a church. I'm not asking if you've done good works. I'm not asking if you've been baptized, etc. What I'm asking you, have you looked to Christ in simple faith? Friend, that's the key. It's my hope and prayer that every one of us in this room has done that. And so, even here in Numbers, we find these important things that foreshadow the work of our Savior. Now, after chapter 21, we encounter one of the strangest accounts in the entire Bible, in my judgment, the account of Balaam. And what we read in Revelation chapter 2, I've summarized this section as the stumbling block of the people, a section that spans from chapters 22 to 25. Now, what we're told in chapter 22 is that Balak, the king of Moab, was distressed because of what he had heard concerning the children of Israel. He had heard of how God had delivered them out of Egypt, and he had heard of some of their military exploits, and now Balak is becoming truly fearful. So he hires a soothsayer by the name of Balaam. By the way, Scripture never calls Balaam a prophet. That's something you commonly hear preachers say, but I I couldn't find any reference in Scripture where he was identified as a prophet. He's a pagan soothsayer. And he's been hired by Balak specifically to curse the people of Israel. And so God comes to Balaam. And he warns him, don't go with these messengers back to Balak. And don't curse these people. These are people that I have blessed. Balaam ignores the warning. He gets on his donkey and he heads to meet with the people of Moab, with the leadership. Of course, the donkey sees something that Balaam doesn't see. He sees the angel of the Lord with a sword drawn And the donkey actually veers off the way and actually crushes Balaam's leg against a wall. Three times we're told that Balaam actually has to smite his donkey. And God miraculously enables the donkey to talk. Now, interestingly, we don't read of Balaam being totally freaked out by this. I would be. But the donkey ultimately rebukes Balaam for continuing to hit him over and over again. And eventually Balaam's eyes are open so that he sees the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, standing there. And God, of course, has to warn him again that these are the people that he's chosen. And notably, Balaam, I mean, he's, he's still got the dollar signs in his eyes, essentially. He's thinking of what he can get out of this whole transaction. And he is actually determined to curse Israel. But ultimately, every time he tries to curse Israel, God reverses it and he ensures that Balaam blesses Israel instead. Truly remarkable and a bit puzzling to us. But this pagan soothsayer, amazingly, he actually gives a prophecy of the coming Messiah. You see it in chapter 24 and verse 17. If you look there. 
Notice, this is what Balaam says. He says, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall arise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Sheth. It's very similar to a promise that we find in Genesis 49. As Jacob's pronouncing blessings on his sons, he specifically says that the line of Judah, that the scepter will not depart from that line. And that through Judah's line would come a lawgiver. And so you see, even this pagan soothsayer anticipating great blessing for the nation of Israel. Now, what Balaam cannot accomplish through his efforts to curse Israel, of course, God overrides all of those. At this point, we, we have to fill in the blanks a little bit because just reading in numbers, you don't necessarily get a crystal clear picture of how exactly this comes about. But when you read in Revelation, you find that actually what Balaam ends up doing is that he teaches Balak how to ultimately get the people of Israel to go astray. And what he does is actually Balaam instigates a situation that we read about in Numbers 25 where the people of Israel begin committing fornication with the women of Moab and Midian. There's all kinds of fornication taking place. There's idolatry taking place. Of course, God is displeased. There's one Israelite that is even so blatant that he actually brings a Midianite woman into his tent in the sight of Moses. And so we read of Aaron's grandson, Phineas, who takes a javelin and runs it through the Midianite woman and the Israelite in that tent. Yeah, there's blood and guts in the Bible, kids, right? <laughs> but God blessed him for that because ultimately the people of Israel needed to remain pure. They needed to remain separate from the nations. They needed to remain uncontaminated in their worship of Jehovah. Now these chapters have been awfully depressing. But thankfully this isn't where we end up. Because if we ended on chapter 25, we would be met with a people that really was not prepared to enter the promised land at all. But thankfully we get to the third act where we see the renewal of obedience. The renewal of obedience. And once again in chapter 26, you find another census. Number very similar to what we saw in the previous generation. This time, you find 601,730 men of war. God is continuing to bless these people. But it's also worth noting here that when you see the census in Numbers 26, you find that all of the old generation, with three exceptions, Moses, Caleb, and Joshua, all the old generation has died off. They're all gone. You don't see their names repeated here. It's a fresh start for the nation of Israel. Now let's be honest, this new generation, they're not perfect. We've already seen their failures in a few different places in Numbers. But yet there's a note of hope. There's a note of optimism here because now that disbelieving generation, that generation that refused to embrace the promises of God, all of them are gone. And we're starting over. There's a future for Israel. So there's obedience in ordering the camp. 
There's also in chapters 28 through 29, there is obedience in making offerings. You see that described in those chapters. But before that, in chapter 27, there's a critical step of obedience that we see here. And really, it's, it's something that you might overlook if you're not looking through this book carefully. But in chapter 27, let me start reading here in verse 1. Then the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Maker, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and these are the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Terza. They stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the princes and all the congregation by the door of the tabernacle, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, and he was not in the company of them that gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died in his own sin and had no sons. Why should the name of our father be done away from among his family? Because he hath no son. Give unto us therefore a possession among the brethren of our father. Now you notice these daughters... Their father had passed away and he died in unbelief. He was one of those that refused to embrace the promise of God. But these daughters, and as women in a patriarchal culture, they had no rights to inheritance. But yet we see their faith that Israel is going to be in the land. And they ask Moses, hey, our father, he didn't have any sons. Can we receive an inheritance and keep the name of our father alive. Already we see there's a vast difference between this generation and the one that has preceded it. They are trusting in the promises of God. So we saw the offerings in chapters 28 and 29. We see keeping vows in chapter 30. That would be vital as the people are entering the land. We also see obedience in declaring war in chapter 31. There is vengeance that is executed against the Midianites because they had refused to allow Israel to pass through their land. And finally, and to conclude the book of Numbers, in chapters 32 through 36, we see obedience in dividing the land. We find in this section that two and a half tribes decide to take their allotment allotment east of Jordan. These would be the tribes of Gad, Reuben, and half the tribe of Manasseh. But nonetheless, they assured the rest of their brethren that they were going to go in and they were going to fight for the land of Canaan to ensure that the people would be unified and that they would conquer the Canaanites. Chapter 35 describes for us the cities of refuge, and in so doing there is a distinction that is drawn between manslaughter and murder, just as there is in most legal systems today. But this was an assurance that if somebody killed someone else unintentionally, there would not be unnecessary guilt brought upon the land by putting that person to death. So there was provision made so that God would not exercise his displeasure against his people. And finally, chapter 36 circles back to the inheritance of the daughters of Zelophehad and explaining that they needed to marry within their own tribe in order to keep that allotment that they were to inherit. Now, what is the takeaway from the book of Numbers? I know we've, we've traversed quite a bit of ground this evening. 
But let me quickly urge you to turn to Hebrews, if I could. I, I would suggest that Hebrews really, in some sense, gives us the inspired commentary on the events of the book of Numbers. Notice Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. A citation here from Psalm 95 and an apt summary of what happened with that generation of the Exodus. They rejected God. They refused to believe His promise. They hardened their heart. Interesting language used. Much like Pharaoh, right? Even despite all the things that they saw God do, they hardened their hearts. I mean, they had seen the exodus. They had seen the plagues. They saw the parting of the Red Sea. They saw God provide manna. And yet, they hardened their hearts and refused to believe His promise to enter the land. Now notice the exhortation that the author of Hebrews gives to his readers in verse 12. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. Now we mentioned the problem of the Exodus generation and complaining. But I would suggest to you that the complaining was really a symptom the root was unbelief. They would not believe the promises of God. And I would suggest to you, if we think about the application here, there could be those in this room that, no, you've not seen God do miracles, but you come to this church week after week, you hear the preaching of the scriptures. You hear the hymns sung, which have so much rich doctrinal biblical truth you hear the scriptures read from this pulpit time and time again. You see people around you that are taking in the word of God and who are being conformed to the image of Christ. But yet you sit there and you harden your heart. Now, it, it could be in some cases that people like this, that kind of like the, the Exodus generation, complaining, murmuring, creating problems in the church, Sometimes that's just an issue of immaturity. That's what we saw with the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 10, it goes through many of these same things that happened in the wilderness. Warning that these are examples for us not to follow. And so it could very well be simply an issue of immaturity, but in some cases it might simply be that you've never had a life-changing encounter with Christ. Your heart is in unbelief and it's manifesting itself in continued rebellion, continued murmuring, continued complaining. The exhortation given by the author of Hebrews here, take heed lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Do you know Christ? 
Do you have that genuine faith that contrasts with the hardness of heart demonstrated by the Exodus generation? Oh, friend, I would urge you, look to Christ. Just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man is lifted up, and it is incumbent upon each person here to look to Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've spent examining this book. We pray, Father, that this message could go deep into our hearts. We pray it would bear fruit. We ask this in Jesus' name.